when the entire clitoris and the labia minora and labia majora are cut off and everything is sealed together and a very tiny hole is left you know like at the head of a matchstick and that's only to allow the urine or the menstrual period to go through can you imagine a woman having sex with a man in that tiny hole this is airing pain the program brought to you by pain concern the uk charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals i'm paul evans and this edition's been supported by a grant from rosa the uk fund for women and girls on the day of their wedding that's when the man is supposed to open up they have to force themselves through that tiny hole you can imagine and sometimes if they can't do it they have to be cut up and the man has to sleep with them on the day of the wedding that is torture childbirth how can a child come out of there these are the terrible consequences women are having to live with female genital mutilation FGM refers to all procedures involving partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. In the UK, it's estimated that over 100,000 women are living with the consequences of FGM, and 60,000 girls are at risk. For this edition of Airing Pain, Janet Graves talks to survivors, clinicians, and those working to eradicate this culturally embedded practice. My name is Juliet Albert. I'm a specialist FGM midwife. I work at Queen Charlotte's Hospital, which is part of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, and I'm also project lead for the Acton African Well Woman Clinic. There are four different types of FGM. Overall, um, FGM is defined as any procedure that is um harmful and that has absolutely no health benefits so a procedure that's done to the female genitals but there are four different types of fgm type 1 is where the hood of the clitoris or the clitoris itself has been removed or cut type 2 is where the clitoris and clitoral hood and part of the labia um the anterior part has been removed type 3 is where the clitoris and clitoral hood sometimes and most of the labia has been removed and then the area is stitched up to form an anterior scar leaving a very very small opening with which to pass urine and menstrual blood and type 4 is really any other procedure so that includes any pricking piercing um stretching of the labia basically anything else that's done to the female genitals My name is Valentine Koyo and I'm originally from Kenya from a community called the Masai I was 11 years old uh, when one morning my mother called me into the kitchen. She had just finished milking the cows and she said I want there's something I want to speak to you about. And she said to me it's um time for you to become a woman. And I didn't know what that meant. Um and then I asked her what do you mean I need to become a woman? She said it's time for you to be cut. You and your sister are big girls enough now. So that evening there was a big celebration a lot of food and alcohol and the men and women were singing and my sister and I and two other girls in my village were going to be cut at the same time and um in the evening 
my sister and I were taken away and we were shaven because we needed to be clean. And we were given, you know, new clothes that we were going to wear during the entire process. We were given presents that evening by the elderly ladies, our aunties, and then we were to be given presents in the morning after FGM by our uncles. And then in the morning around six o'clock, we took off our clothes and we were given, you know, tiny um, blankets. We called them lessos and they were wrapped around us. It was so cold, really, really cold. And my sister and I and the other two girls from the village were taken to the bushes where they were going to, to carry out the operation. And they had like a big uh, piece of clothes that was laid on the ground and then there was hide on top. So my sister was on the left and the other two girls from the village were on the right. And two women grabbed my legs and they opened them uh, open. And then there were other women who pinned down from the back. So I couldn't move uh, my hands and I couldn't move my legs and it was the tightest. I've never felt so spread out like that. I remember looking up and I saw the, the cutter and, oh my God, I can remember everything she wore. I can remember the jewelry she had, the color of the clothes she had. Her face has never left me. Anytime I talk about it, it's still there. It's not something that can go away because I knew this is like someone who's going to punish me for a lifetime. Someone who's going to take a piece of me away. And I remember I closed my eyes because I didn't want to see her until the operation was, was done. So I closed my eyes. And when I closed my eyes, I could feel my, my sister moving, but she couldn't make any noises. And the women were saying, you know, you know, don't be a coward, don't be a coward. And then I, I can't remember the amount of time it took, but I could feel her struggling with them and she couldn't cry. And then that stopped and I opened my eyes and then saw the woman again, and then I closed them. I didn't want to see her again. And I had like a very sharp pinch on my clitoris. And immediately I started feeling the razor. And she actually used the same razor she used on my sister. And I started feeling each and every cut she was making. I felt it. And the, the women behind me were saying, you are a brave girl, keep strong, you know. Don't move, this will be, this will end soon. But it felt like a lifetime thing. And the anger was, I couldn't understand why I had to go, why I had to go through um, FGM. And such a painful thing, you can't even explain the pain. And I remember they were saying, don't cry. But I was crying from the inside. But I didn't want to shame my family because once you scream or cry, that will be a mark forever. And even for the man who will marry you, they will know that you cried when you were being cut. And it's such a psychological thing that you can't, you know, you can't live with. So you just cry from the inside. And then to make things worse, after she finished um, cutting me, they took salty water and they poured on the raw, on the raw, on the raw wound. And that was hell. I can't even explain how it felt. It was so bad. Imagine when you have even a tiny cut and then someone put some, some salt on that. Absolutely horrendous. And it's the same pain that when I imagine another 
child is about to go through it makes me really upset it makes me really angry so they cut the other girls I was so weak they they helped me to stand up and then we went and stood outside the room where we were supposed to heal from and our uncles were supposed to give us presents so we were you know offered cows sheep and um, you know money and I remember looking down and I was standing in the pool of my own blood. I could see it flowing. And I, I couldn't understand why I had to go through that pain. Yet there were still people singing there that it was a good thing. But it wasn't. And the pain was absolute. I, it's not something you can explain. To me, even the presence didn't didn't count because I immediately I was cut and there was something about my life was taken away. So after we were given the presents, we were taken back to the room and I passed out because I had bled so much there. And I remember when I regained consciousness, they were pouring coke, you know, down my throat because they couldn't take me to hospital because that wasn't, you know, it would have been bad and they would have been caught for cutting me. But I was so weak. But for the whole three weeks we were supposed to heal, I kept getting flashbacks. You know, and I would just see these people who were running after me, maybe to cut my throat or just to take something away, and I would try running away. And when they are about to cut me, then I would wake up. And then the pain was when you actually wake up quickly because you still have the wound and then it would just make it even worse. And we had to be looked after for three weeks and every day they would use the salty water and Dettol, the disinfectant, and the smell of the disinfectant up to date. Sometimes when I smell it, I just feel like, oh, I, I hate it. Even if the doctors would recommend it, I, I can't take it because it keeps bringing back the memories. And I think for me, it's the psychological impact that has continued. And it's not something that anybody should go through. There are unfortunately multiple long-term pain problems as a result of FGM. We see women in our clinic with long-term pain, so complex perineal problems as a result of their FGM. For example, pain passing urine, pain during sexual intercourse, sometimes just constant continuous pain. We also see women who are having pain, again, during sexual intercourse because, for example, if they have a very severe type 3, some of the women, their pain is having had children which is a consequence of having children and their FGM. So it, it does vary considerably. And then a lot of women have a lot of emotional pain. So we see women, for example, who may have only, I say only, but may have had the less severe type 1 perhaps, but they will have all the memories of being held down, bleeding, the pain, no anaesthetic being used. And as a consequence, their psychological pain is very extreme, very severe. My name is Hannah. I'm coming from East Africa, which is from Ethiopia, but originally from Eritrea. Probably I was nine years old when I had FGM. And it was early morning. Uh, I told her to go in a room, one empty room, and then the lady, not a proper midwife, like, but a traditional 
So she came there and then they told me to sit there and then the other two people, they holding my two legs. And then after that, it was really painful. Normally they did it in early age, when you are a little girl, like after you born 80 weeks or something, that's normally they did it. But for some reason, I don't know, mine was late until I've been nine years. So I should do it that because in our country, they believing having FGM is it's like protecting the woman not to go different months or to protect you, to make you calm, but they don't realize it. After you have the FGM, what's the consequence? It is very painful. After they did it, it's more painful because they treat you with traditional things as well. Because you're not going to hospital or you're not going treated by proper things. They're just doing with herbal. And then they're putting every morning that's your private area. It's really burnt. It's painful. I can't forget it. A woman with type 1 who has had perhaps a less physically limiting type of FGM may have very severe psychological consequences which may not even arise until she's actually pregnant. So there are women that we've met who have sort of buried their FGM and and haven't thought about it, haven't spoken about it and suddenly during pregnancy and childbirth they suddenly have flashbacks and the whole thing comes back to them because you can imagine obviously during a vaginal examination it suddenly reminds them of the place where they were when they were a child when their FGM was carried out. So it doesn't necessarily matter what type they've had. It may be that that childbirth has a lot of severe emotional consequences. And then, of course, we have the women who've got the more severe physical types, like type 3 in particular, where they may have even struggled to get pregnant because if they have a very small opening, if it's about half a centimetre diameter, sexual penetration is incredibly painful, if at all possible. We do have three or four women every year who come to our clinic who are pregnant despite having a very tiny opening like that and I always say you know don't be naive and think it's not possible because it can be possible. Since I am pregnant I had pain most of the time and most of when I'm delivery time it was nightmare really for me. It was four nights and four days for delivery because the doctor, they was assessing me, told me I'm going to have a stitch because of my FGM. It's not easy to open properly and then to have normal delivery. For those women with very severe type 3, they need to be opened, preferably antenatally, before going into labour because actually doing a vaginal examination is very painful and also very difficult for the person trying to do it. Putting in a urinary catheter is extremely difficult. And if the woman arrives in labour, for example, very late on, when perhaps she's already in the second stage, she's already pushing, then it may be an emergency procedure to open her by somebody who perhaps has never even seen a woman with type 3 FGM before and perhaps doesn't know what they're doing. It may mean that the woman will end up with a caesarean section because the birth attendant doesn't really know how's the best way to deal with it. Then after the birth, there's also lots of problems with very severe tearing because they have a lot of scar tissue in the area. Um, They're much more likely to have postpartum hemorrhage, so extra bleeding. And then as a consequence, obviously, lots of physical pain. The nurse, they don't have any knowledge of FGM. 
and after I have my baby after a month, I've got really four months pain. And then they think when I went to hospital, when I say to them, still I have got pain. When I stand, I feel something is pushing me down. It was like I was shaking even my body. And when I went all the time to the GP, they said, oh, the stitches dry, you don't have any problem because they're not realizing inside what's going on. Sometimes when women go into hospitals, I think, or perhaps even to a GP, and they may be examined for the first time genitally, it may be that the person has never seen FGM before and you do hear stories from women, but there's also research actually. Forward did a piece of research um, called the Peer Report where uh, women described healthcare professionals' shock at seeing them, their FGM, and bringing other healthcare professionals into having a look, sometimes even exclaiming loudly how shocked they were and really desperately upsetting the women themselves. So I think it's terribly important that we do have FGM specialists that women can be referred to so that, for example, if a woman does go for a smear test, if that practice nurse or, or GP has never seen FGM before and just can has noticed that it doesn't look the same as it normally looks, I don't like to use the word normal because I know it can upset women, but that they then would refer them to an FGM specialist. And in London, there are several specialist FGM clinics, but most of them are hospital-based and are linked to maternity services. So it's quite unusual to find a community-based clinic like ours that is open to non-pregnant women as well. There is a clinic in Bristol which opened last year, which is GP-led, which is based on our model in Acton. But there aren't many services similar to this. And although London has got, as I said, other clinics where women can access, there is a very well-known FGM clinic in Birmingham, there's one in Oxford, so there are uh, centres of excellence, but there are also places where there's literally nothing really for women. There may be community groups and third sector organisations, but they don't have access to specialist uh, NHS services. And this is a problem for a woman who lives in Newcastle to come and see me in London, obviously, is very, very difficult. We had a lady come from Northern Ireland a couple of months ago. She said she left home at four o'clock in the morning to fly over to London to come to our clinic because she didn't know where to go. And she had had three children by caesarean section. Two of them were born in Newcastle and one in Northern Ireland. And she said that not once during her caesarean sections did anybody mention her FGM. Now that's at least three people who've placed a urinary catheter and not mentioned that she had a severe type 3 FGM. So there are definitely problems with healthcare professionals not knowing how to help women with FGM. My name is Aisa Idon. I am a midwife, but I'm also a specialist midwife on FGM matter. And uh, I'm also what we call a survivor of FGM. But I, I would like to call myself a fighter. If you look at the background of uh, the practice of FGM, it's done by family members. So it's a grandmother or mother, someone you trust, who will brought you in a place where you will have the most horrible pain in your life, the most horrible situation in your life. So uh, trust issue can be really one of the psychological impacts of FGM. 
That was done when I was six years old, but I was with my little sister. She was only one years old. And I did carry the guilt also because uh, for me, uh, my sister should not have had that done. It, it was performed to both of us because I was uh, in the process to, uh, to go away to France. So uh, it wasn't planned for her at this time. Vegas did that because I was the one who's going. So Vegas did think that, oh, okay, let's do both of them together. <laughs> so I, I did have a guilt for a long time uh, towards my sister because I was thinking it's my fault. And I developed uh, a clinic, I call that Hope Clinic, to offer holistic care to the woman and uh, their family. We work with the ladies and with a project, with a plan for this lady in particular, not for, you know, like a very individual care. Uh, but it's also education and prevention because when you have to go for, to the care, I think it's too late. So education and prevention is more important. We don't want anybody to go through FGM. For women who've had type 3 FGM, the most severe type, there is a procedure called de-infibulation or, or opening, really. We actually cut open the anterior scar so that we reveal the vaginal opening and the urine hole underneath the scar tissue. And then we stitch the edges of that opening to stop it refusing back together. Sometimes, historically, this procedure was called a reversal, but we try not to use that term because obviously you can't put back what was taken away. So for the women with type 3, there is actually a sort of physical procedure that can sometimes be done. Uh, sometimes it's not possible to do it. So for women um, where it's more complicated, so if, for example, if they have a cyst as well um, as their type 3, or sometimes the anterior scar has fused with the urinary meatus so it makes it very difficult to deinfibulate. so for some women we can't but this opening deinfibulation procedure is actually quite a minor procedure and can be done under local anaesthetic in an outpatient setting we had a woman recently who'd been closed for nearly 40 years and she was actually sort of exclaiming loudly with delight that she was finally open um, other women who've had several children who've been what we call reinfibulated, reclosed in between children, um, again, who, who have come to see us because they want opening. For those women who've had other types of FGM, there isn't actually a physical procedure that we can do. Really, they need a lot of counselling and psychological support. We had a woman recently, a young woman, who came to see us who wanted to know what type she had. When I had a look, I explained to her that she had type 1 and I explained that we couldn't put anything back that had been taken away. She had had some of her clitoral hood removed and her clitoris removed. And she was terribly, terribly upset. She said, I want you to make me normal again like everyone else. I want you to put back what they took away. And she was really distraught because she was expecting something that we couldn't provide for her. I made a commitment and said I will not dare sit and watch any of my nieces go through what I went through. So I started talking to different uh, family members and only last year my mother, sisters and brother made a commitment and it took a lot of time of me picking up the phone and just excusing myself and saying sorry I'm going to talk about something we normally don't talk comfortably about and the hardest was actually my brother because I said I want you to know what was done to me and what I'm living with 
and I want you to tell me if you want your daughter to go through that. And when I explained everything, he said, I will never let that happen. And if I had anybody's willing to do that, I will take a step forward. So for me, I've managed to deal with the psychological part of that by helping others. So the Mojati Foundation is a not-for-profit organization. We are based in Nottingham, and we mainly work with African and Caribbean communities. We produce six issues of a community magazine called Mojatu, and we use it to raise awareness on issues affecting African and Caribbean communities. The most important thing is to actually help people understand where the help and support is. So what I've been doing personally is going around and talking to survivors. And what I've been trying to do is to encourage the women who've gone through FGM to seek medical support. And that will not only help their health condition, but it will also help in data collection to actually understand the magnitude of the problem locally and also nationally so that this can be managed in a much better way. But we need to have coordinated efforts from the police, from the city council, from the communities, and also engage the survivors. And now we have a Nottingham FGM steering group, and I'm part of the board as a community representative. And I think this is so powerful, you know, bringing all these people together and have everybody's voice. And for me, what I've been trying to do is to inspire the survivors to know that it's actually okay to talk about what happened to them. And it's okay to share with other people because that's the only way people can connect with what happened and also take uh, steps forward to support girls. And for the vast majority of the survivors I'm working with, they've uh, said it's been very empowering for them to feel they're part of a decision-making process on how FGM can be tackled. And for me, I strongly believe that they are a powerful force in helping themselves to deal with the pain of what happened and all the consequences and to protect our girls. That was FGM survivor Valentine Nkoyo. For more information on the Majato Foundation, go to her website, which is valentineNkoyo.com, and Nkoyo is spelled N-K-O-Y-O. Other organisations mentioned are the Hope Clinic, and their website is fgmhopeclinic.com. .co.uk and there's a comprehensive list of FGM clinics and resources at forwarduk.org.uk. All these links are also on Pain Concerns website from where you can download this and every edition of Airing Pain as well as transcripts and further information about FGM and other chronic pain related topics. You can read more about FGM in edition 62 of Pain Matters magazine. And as I say, all these details are on Pain Concern's website, painconcern.org.uk. And I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances, and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. I feel very positive, actually, that a lot of the women we see in our clinic, and and particularly the women who've gone through years of pain themselves, have absolutely no intention of doing their daughters and, in fact, feel very strongly about not doing their daughters and other family members. I think that women are being educated about the health complications of FGM and, and really now understand the link between the two. 
I think historically, you can imagine if a woman wasn't educated about her anatomy, didn't know anything about biology, and everybody else is the same as her, they wouldn't even make the connection between the FGM and the physical pain that she's having. And I think that now women that are educated in this country and they're seeing their children go through the education system, I think it's also to do with more equality, more expect, higher expectations. But I do believe that women are really against the practice, and men as well, actually. We really do see that families understand that FGM is a bad thing. Now, of course, I mustn't be naive, and I'm sure there are small pockets where there are people who still want to continue the practice. And my concern is that sometimes they may practice a less severe type of FGM because they believe that this is a cultural tradition that we need to continue, and if we do a less severe type, that's okay. So we do also spend a lot of the time explaining to the women that even the least severe type will have a really bad psychological impact and that it's important that they understand that's a human rights violation as well. I am very hopeful that we can actually end FGM in a generation. I was the last born girl in my family and I made it a priority that I will not stand and see anybody in my family go through it. So just four of my nieces were saved last year from going through FGM. A lot of work is still needed, and I know there are fantastic people out there. Someone like Lynn Featherstone has been very supportive of the campaign. There's Daughters of Eve, there's um, Dr. Comfort Momo, there's Forward, uh, there's Mojato Foundation, all the work we are doing to raise awareness. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's a gradual process, but we will be able to tackle FGM. And it's everybody's business to look after our girls.